Good morning. It's always great when you've got a pulpit where everything slides to the bottom, isn't it? <laughs> Good. Um, well, first of all, my wife, Sanna, and our five children sends their greetings to you. As I'm here for the whole day, it's always a bit of a long day to bring them all the way from Lynham. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they would struggle to, to, to make it through a 14-hour day like this. Um, I, I, I work in Lynham. You might remember I was here a couple of weeks ago uh, with SASRA, uh, Soldiers and Airmen Scripture Reading Association. I work there as a missionary among the armed forces. And uh, I've been asked to come and speak to you this morning about biblical fatherhood. And so the plan for both this morning and this evening we, is that we will address this subject throughout. Uh, really what we're going to do this morning is lay the foundation of what biblical fatherhood is and what it looks like. And we're going to do that in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. And tonight we will continue with that and look at some of the practical implications of being a biblical father. And so I would, would say one thing before I start, brothers and sisters. I'm not standing here as an authority on this matter. I'm not standing here... As somebody, even though I have five children who's gotten to the point where I've got everything worked out and everything work, is working smoothly. Now, I'm, I'm standing here as a, f- a fellow brother who struggles with these realities daily and often fail. But regardless of our failures, we are called by our Lord Jesus Christ to every day strive to do better because of his grace and mercy that were bestowed on us. And so it's with that mindset that we will look at these passages and address these things today. Now, you see on, on the board we have Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 and 2 as a background text. And although we're going to be looking and dealing with the whole, really, of Ephesians 5. We're not going to have time to cover every verse, but we are going to be considering the whole of Ephesians 5 and the first part of Ephesians 6. This is the key phrase that we need to have in the background of our minds. I'll read it for us, and you will see as we progress through this why these verses are so important. Well, let us read these verses. I'm reading from the ESV. I don't know. You're using the NIV, so it might be a little bit different. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help me, Father, to preach your word faithfully. Lord, as we look across our nation, we see, Father, that the family unit is being degraded on every level. Fathers are being belittled, removed from the picture, and in many ways, And times they are destroying their own God-given authority. And we see, Father, that 
the consequence of this reality are so far widespread throughout our nation that in many ways, even in the church, we've reached the point where we consider, is there any place to return from the destruction that has been caused by a lack of biblical fathers in our world today? And so, Lord, our prayer is this morning that as we read and, and focus on your word and as your word is being proclaimed, that we as your people would be moved, that we would be transformed by your word and that, Lord, above all things, that we might, may be encouraged and strengthened by your Holy Spirit to live in faith and obedience, O oh Lord. Help us not to live as though you have never addressed this issue, but as we, in our lives, go, go through the things that we do day by day, whether we are wives, husbands, fathers, or children, that we would consider the implication of what it means to be a biblical father, and that each of us, regardless who we are, would find our place in that really important role that you have given and instituted in your word. So Lord, help us now, we pray, because we need your help. I need your help. My brothers and sisters here need your help. And we thank you, Lord, that as we pray, we know you hear us. Because the prayers of the righteous are always before you. And we thank you, Lord, that we are standing in the righteousness of Christ. We know this is our only claim to your throne. We only claim to be heard by you is because of what the Lord Jesus had done for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let me just set this on so that I know when to stop. Um, you know, when we look at society, when we look at the church, we see that the idea of male headship or male leadership is being attacked on every front. And we know male headship or male leadership is really pivotal not only for our households, but it's pivotal for our churches and it is pivotal for our society at large. It is probably one of the most important issues of our day. And this is why I was so, so, so humbled, really, when I was asked to come and speak to you about this. Because, you know, in my day-to-day -day work among young men, I come across so many soldiers who have no idea what a father is meant to be. You know, last week, actually... I, I was on another deputation tour down in South Wales. And uh, as I was going about, the one deputation meeting I had was in the evening. And the pastor of this church invited me to come and spend the day with him. I always delight in that, especially when it's an older man. There's so much that I can learn from them. And so I think about halfway through the day, he was getting pretty tired of me asking all these questions. And uh, he said, let's go sit and have a coffee in the living room. And we sat there. And as we sat there, you know, I just, I just thought he, he was a man who became a Christian late in his life. He had told me that, um, you know, mo he, his four children had almost grown up by the time 
he became a Christian and it's a great regret to him that he wasn't able to impact them in a Christian way and none of his children were walking with the Lord as a result of this. Um, I, I, as, we, as I listened to him talking, I stopped at one moment and I asked him, I said to him, Pastor, I'm a young man and, and I'm a preacher. What advice would you give to a young man who is a preacher who's bringing up a young family? What advice would you give to me as a, as a, as a father and as the, as the head of my household? And he, he sat back and he fought for a minute. And then he leaned across and he said to me, I would tell you one thing. And that is to love your family. You know, you know when you hear something, when, when you expected something more, and, and, and you know, you want to be polite, so you try and create an uh, you know, impression on your face that you think, you know, you're trying to pretend, oh, that was some profound words that you just gave. And I sat there, and I could, I hope I hid my disappointment. I don't know if I did, but I was expecting more. You know, and actually, when, when, when I started preparing for this, And I started looking specifically at Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. I realized, actually, that pastor gave me the most profound advice that he possibly could. Love your family. And, and we, we, you know, this is something that I just want you to keep in the background of your mind. We will come back to this, uh, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, in a moment. But before we do that... And before we address the issues of what it is to be a biblical father, we need to understand that as a biblical father, you are first and foremost the head of your household. So in other words, you are the leader in your household. And this is what Ephesians chapter 5 addressed, biblical leadership. And so we need to consider that aspect to understand what it is to be a biblical father. The man's leadership in the house is determined by God himself. It's a role that has been instituted by God. And there's actually nothing that a man can do. A man can can neglect that role, but it's nothing a man or a wife or anyone else can do to change God's position on this matter. You know, as I work with, with soldiers, I, I often get across, you know, I come across guys that are from so many different backgrounds. But sometimes the most heartbreaking moments I have is when I minister to professing Christians in the military. And a couple of years ago, I ministered to one soldier who professes, professed faith in Jesus Christ. Um, I met with him for a while, and as I met with him, I realized that he was experiencing great difficulties at home with his family. And as our friendship grew, so also the understanding of all the difficulties that he was facing. And I realized before long that this marriage was heading into a very difficult situation. Uh, He went to a church not far from us, so I called his pastor. I spoke to him about it. The pastor said... Yes, you know, he knows, he thinks actually that they're on, on, on the path to divorce, but he didn't really feel he could interfere in this matter. You know, so sadly, 
I started uh, meeting with this guy. I, I, I spoke to him candidly about it. He said, yes, they're probably going to get a divorce very soon. And I asked him if he would be willing to meet with me so we could look at what it is to be a husband basically, uh, biblically, what it is, what his, his, his responsibilities is as a father in his household. He had two little children. And, you know, we started meeting for about six weeks. I met with him and his wife. Um, we, we, we spent roughly about two hours a week together. And, and I, as I ministered to them, it became, it became abundantly clear that his wife desperately desired for their marriage to be, to be reconciled and for them to, 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 to stand before Christ in this union that he has instituted. But this man clearly had no desire to make his marriage work. Come, come, go with me. If you have your Bible with you, I'm going to go to several passages today. And I want you just to consider these things. And this is one of the aspects that I saw was a great problem in this guy's life. If you come to, with me to James chapter, um, James chapter, let me just find the right chapter here. Uh, 3 verses 14 to 16. Let me read that for you. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be dishonor and envy and every vile practice. You know, the more I met with this guy, the more I realized this was his promise. He had all of his selfish ambitions before him. When I talked to him about his wife, it was always, well, my wife don't submit in this. My wife don't listen to me when I say that. She doesn't do this. She doesn't do that. Everything that he pertained unto himself, every selfish desire you could imagine, he was considering and he desired for his wife to fulfill each of those aspects. You know, I spoke to him about God's calling upon the, the husband to, 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 to die to yourself and to live for your wife. And in that context, you find the reality of what biblical submission for your wife would look like and the more i spoke to him about that the more it seemed like his heart was hardened ultimately this guy did divorce his wife he did leave his children and last time i heard you know he didn't visit them or see them at all how sad is that when that is not the outcome of people who profess to be christians in the church is this then, brothers and sisters, an issue that we can continue to ignore in our churches when statistics across England and America and everywhere else would say that divorce and fatherlessness and single parents and all those issues are the same in the church as it is outside in the world? We are called by God to be a peculiar people. We are called to be a holy people, a different people, a people that is set apart for God's purposes and not our own deceitful desires. 
And so the first thing we need to consider is that a man has been called into a position of leadership in his household. And we see here in chapter 5, countless objections to this reality in the world. The world would not want men to be leaders in their household. But we're not going to address that this moment. We won't have the time to look at all the objections that exist in the world when it comes to male headship and male leadership as a father. But what we do need to consider in this passage briefly is the objections that exist in the church against male leadership. And there is a few that mainly is focused on this passage because this is the crucial passage when it comes to male headship and the head of the family as a father. So let me briefly just mention those objections to you so it's in your mind. We have three objections. We have a cultural objection. We have the objection of the curse. And then we have the objection that is raised because of confusion in this passage that we will look at. Now, first and foremost, the cultural objection. When you get those in the church who say, well, Paul is actually not talking about men being leaders in their home in this passage in a way that would be binding to every generation. It is something that is binding only to the culture that Paul is addressing at that time. Well, that, that objection is easy to blow out the water. Because first of all, this is not the only place where God addresses male headship in the Bible. We have it all through Scripture. We have it in Colossians chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, Titus 2 and Titus 5, Genesis 1 through to 3, 1 Corinthians 11, and 1 and 2 Timothy is filled with it. So it is not something that we can look at and just say, you know, here's the one passage that work on it. It's cultural. If we want to say it's a cultural problem, then you need to superimpose that argument on each and every one of the other passages. And then we are clearly starting to corrupt God's word. So it is not just a cultural thing that Paul is addressing here. The second issue is the issue of the curse. Genesis 3 verse 16. The argument would be, in the church that Genesis 3 verse 16 is written for those prior to redemption. And it is a result of the curse that Eve has gotten to the position where she finds herself yerking after the leadership of her husband. And they would read the passage, Genesis 3 verse 16, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your, your pain in childbearing, in, sorry, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So the argument they present there is that in the Bible, Eve, Eve desired the husband to rule over her because of, the, because of her sin, because of the curse. But now that we are redeemed in the New Testament, that no longer applies to me. You know, first of all, that is a bogus statement, is it not? Because if that part no longer applied, applied then why does pain still apply in childbirth? Now, I've had five children, and I've been with my wife for each and every birth, and I have seen what real pain is. You know, I was foolish enough with our first child to make a few comments, which I still regret today. 
I can remember we were in Germany. We were based in Germany. I was in the army at that stage as a regular soldier. And, you know, being, being a young fool, I, I didn't consider what I said. And my wife went into labor. She was two weeks overdue. She was induced. And as we were taken into the labor ward, there was other women in, in different rooms as well. And, you know, my wife started yelling quite loudly. And I thought to myself, then, you know, is this proper? Should she be doing this? And I made the mistake to say to her, you know, maybe you should just quiet down a bit, Sally. You're going to scare the other women here. And both the midwife and my wife gave me looks that I will never forget again. So if there's any future husbands here, just remember, be warned, don't do that. Learn, learn, learn in other ways than through experience. Um, you know, so, so, so the pain in childbirth is still very much active. But more than that, look at this verse. This, this verse here, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you, is in Hebrews the exact same phrase that is used when God speaks to Cain. When Cain gives an offering to God and, and he is about to, you know, he, God doesn't accept his offering and he's very sulky, he's very angry. God meets him and listen what he says to him in chapter 4. Uh, Verse 6, And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So this is not a case where it says sin's desire is to be submissive to you. It's the exact same phrase. Sin's desire is to rule over Cain. And so the curse in, 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 in Genesis talks about the woman's desire to have the position of a husband, to be in the position of leadership. And men are inherently lazy. And so what we have in today's culture is men who all too happily will want to sit and watch TV and drink their beer or whatever, and a woman who desires to step into a position of leadership, and ultimately most men allow that to happen. And because of the curse, the women delight in doing so. And as a result, we have chaos all through our society. This is the biblical precepts that we have. So that is the second Second issue that is being addressed there. The third issue, which is the issue of this passage and the confusion of this passage, is the misinterpretation that is caused by verse 21. You've probably heard it. You know, it says in verse 21 of Ephesians 5, let me just go to Ephesians 5, that's James. Ephesians 5, 21, submit to one another out of love and reverence to Christ. So suddenly they say, well, this submission doesn't mean that anyone actually needs to sp- submit specifically to one individual. It's more of a mutual submission to one another. That is corrupting this passage completely. Let me show you exegetically what is happening in this passage briefly. Um, it is a misrepresentation because if you go to, ch- to verse 15 in, ch- in, 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 in Ephesians, what you have is you have something starting off there. You have a whole section starting off that initially presents us with three contrasts that are being made. After the three contrasts, we find three 
commandments that are being given. And then in the third commandment, so in the, in, the, in the third contrast you get three commandments, and then in the third commandment you get three contexts in which that command should be lived out. So let me show you briefly uh, how, how this, this works. Verse 15, look at the first, the, the, the first contrast that we have. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So it tells us not to walk as unwise, but wise. That's the first contrast. The second contrast, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So do not be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. That's the second contrast. The first contrast is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is democracy, but be filled with the Spirit. Do not get drunk of wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And now in this third, third contrast we're presenting, presented with, we suddenly have three commands. Here comes the three commands. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual song, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That's the first command. The second command, give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now comes the third command. Submit to one another out of reverence in Christ Jesus. And now this command is played out by three, three contexts that is being presented to us. And the contexts that we have is the context of the relationship between wives and husbands, the context of the relationship between parents and children, specifically fathers and children, and then the third context is the relationship between slaves and their masters. So verse 21 is defined by the context in which it is to be held. It is not saying that there is mutual submission between the sexes and between everything we see, but the mutual submission is being identified in the verses that is to follow. And this is really where we now move on. We, we're going to now move away from, from the husband-wife issue. That's not what we hear, but we needed that understanding to understand how fathers are the head of the household and how that example to your children is needed in the fullness of the context. So it's needed to be also the head in your household in your relationship with your wife, or else you cannot fulfill the position of being a biblical father. So we need to consider that, the first thing that we need to consider. The second thing that we consider is what we have here now in Ephesians chapter 6. Let me read this for you. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, this is the first command with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's the question to the fathers here today. Are you disciplining? Are you discipling your children? And are you instructing them in the Lord? What does this discipline, this discipleship look like? You know, it, it strikes me. Because so often you will listen to, to preachers 
across the world. And, and there's so many different opinions on discipline, is there not? You know, people, some people will say, no, you need to strike your children. Other people will say, no, you don't. But some people say, put them in corners. Some people say, don't put them in corners. Whatever those issues is, I'm not going to address any of those things. But the issue at hand is, are you taking the time to teach your children the ways of the Lord? Because, you know, whatever means of discipline you use, discipline is not dealing with something that has just happened and then producing a consequence that would make that individual regret what they have done. That is not discipline. Discipline is taking the time to teach your children, taking the time to change their hearts. You know, in, in our household, I often lose my temper. I often end up yelling. And I wish I could say to you, yeah, you know, every time my children do something wrong, I take the time. I, I, I figure out what it is that they've done, what sin it is that they've committed. I take it to the Word. I tell them, this is what the Bible says. This is why it's sin. My son or my daughter, do you understand? This is why Jesus had to die. This is, this is why Jesus had to go to the cross. Because people like you and I do wrong things like this. And without Him dying for us, that we maybe may have our sin placed upon Him and His righteousness upon us, without that reality, we cannot be saved. You know, fathers and mothers here actually, do you know, every time your child does something wrong, and I'm not just talking about does something that annoys you. We need, to, we need to discern what is wrong and what is just being a child, is it not? But every time your child does something wrong, it is an opportunity for you to illustrate to them the fullness and the implication of the gospel. Do we use that every time? You know, and I would say also to, 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 to the older members in this congregation, you might think, well, how does this affect me? Brothers and sisters... You, you have a lifetime of experience. Even if it's a lifetime of wrong experience, you can draw alongside the younger men in this congregation and say, I did not do it right. This is the outcome of my wrongdoing. By God's grace, may you not repeat my mistakes. Do better. We need to make sure that the next generation do better than we did. That is what discipleship is. Is. It is changing a life so that the fruit of Christ can be displayed in your home, in your relationships with one, and one another. You know, I am so tired of seeing young men in the British Army. Uh, sometimes, yeah, yeah, it's not often, I think I've come across probably in my time in the Army, probably across... Less than 300, this is 20 years, probably less than 300 men or, or, or women, mainly men, that, that have come from Christian homes. And, and I'm so tired to, to meet young soldiers who profess to be Christians, who've grown up in good Christians' home, and their understanding of biblical truth, biblical reality is nowhere. I'm meeting with a guy at the moment who, who's... Uh, Whose, whose mom and dad are evangelical Christians. He professed to be an evangelical Christian. And I spoke to him 
about the significance of the cross. And, you know, I often try and get these guys to explain to me what it is they believe. Many times they've never thought it through clearly. But oftentimes they've never really come face to face with the reality and the truth of the gospel. This guy, I won't name names since I'm still meeting with him. But uh, I, I spoke to him and I said to him, can you explain to me how the cross saves you? And, and his viewpoint was, well, I think, he said, I think that when Jesus uh, was taken to the cross and he was beaten and he was bruised and he had a spear stuck through his, his side, uh, I, think, I think God looked at that and, and he counted that that, uh, that to be enough suffering for our sins. So we don't need to suffer any longer brothers and sisters that's not the gospel you know i asked him i I asked this young man i asked him well can you then explain to me was what the romans did was what the jews did what what everybody else that spat at jesus and maligned jesus and betrayed jesus was what they did would you say that was sin and he said oh yes definitely so can i ask you how does how does piling more sin on humanity How does that redeem us? How does that pay for us? I don't think that makes sense. And he sat and he thought for a bit and he said, I've never thought of it like that. How are we? Well, how does it it work then? And I said to him, I took him to Isaiah and I said to him, this is how it worked. It pleased the Lord to crush him for our sins. It pleased God the Father to pour out his wrath and anger upon his son. So that we didn't have to face it. You know when Jesus saw on that video earlier this morning. Uh, Jesus in Gethsemane. And when Jesus was there in Gethsemane. When he cried out to God. Lord may this cup pass from me if it's at all possible. What was he praying? Was he, was he afraid of the, the, the whips and, and the, the spear. And all the suffering he was going through. I don't think so brothers and sisters. We, we see Ridley and, and all those other saints in the history behind Jesus going to, the, going to be burned alive for their faith. And they were singing hymns. They were praising God. Were his servants then more virtuous in their faith and understanding than the Savior himself? That Jesus cower in the garden and ask his father to remove this cup from me? No. It's our understanding about what was in that cup. And in that cup that Jesus was about to drink was the wrath and anger of God over all the sin of all the world. And Jesus swallowed it up for us. That was the concern that Jesus had. And that is what we are to communicate to our children. What is your desire for your children as fathers? Fathers, what do you want from your children? Do you want them to be uh, lawyers, engineers, businessmen, doctors perhaps, so they can help others? Many valiant positions in the world to hold, is it not? What is your most important desire for your children? Should it not be that they may be saved? 
that they can go into eternity knowing that they have done that what is pleasing to the Lord and that they stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. You know, before, although I grew up in a Christian home and there's not a time where I can't remember where I submitted and feared the Lord and desired to know Jesus, it was much later in my life that I believed I was saved when I actually started reading the Bible. You know, when my daughter was born, although I was a professing Christian, certainly my life didn't, didn't display the realities of being a Christian. I could remember when she came in the, into the world, I was thinking, oh, we could plan that she play te- tennis, do ballet, do this, do this, so that she can become somebody great in the world. Now I can tell you my only desire for each and every one of my children is that they know Jesus Christ. I would be happy if all of my children become street sweepers and they walk with the Lord. Even if they live in some third world country. I would be happy if that's the case. If one of my children becomes a brain surgeon and they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I will feel like a failure as a father. And I don't know your backgrounds, especially among the older generation. Yet again, as I say to you, maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, what about me? Yet again, bring those thoughts to the Bible and think how you can equip the younger men and women in your church. This is not games. This is about Jesus Christ and us being His servants in this world. It's not about us being a Sunday club or a holy huddle. No, it's about how are we going to serve our Lord. You know, I don't know, last time I was here, I don't know if I mentioned the guy called Geordie. You know, because if, 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 we, if we think about the fullness, about what all of these earthly desires could hold for us, we need to remember what Jesus said. What does it profit a man? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? You know, young man I've been ministering to for almost seven years now. Um, the most recent period, I don't know if I mentioned him last time, because one of the recent things that happened uh, a couple of months ago was the last time I met with him. But I met him the first time about eight years ago, six or eight years ago, I can't remember exactly. Played rugby with the army, uh, with Remy, and Jordi uh, was a professing atheist. I'll cut the long story short. Um, I witnessed to him. He continued to stand firm in his atheism. Uh, one day before the rugby game, I was reading the Bible for the, for, for, for the, for the guys playing. We, we had a tradition that year. Every time we played a game, I would read the Bible and pray for the guys before we went out. And, you know, we won every game that year. And the, that really messed with their heads. But uh, anyway, one of the, one of the guys there, Geordie, a specific day I read to them Proverbs 3 verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, uh, tr- in, in all your ways, well, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, uh, uh, trust in Him. Help me. He will bring healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. You know that passage. Anyway, I read that and he, he, he came out as we ran out onto the field. Jordi ran up behind me and he said to me, Tian, that was awesome, man. Can you write it on a piece of paper for me? And I said to him, Jordi, why do you want it? You're atheist. He said, oh, I want to get it tattooed on my back. So I thought, that's not what it's for. Uh, but I wrote it down for him anyway. A couple of weeks later, I came to rugby practice one Monday evening. 
Jordy was sitting there on the rugby field with his hair, hands in his hair like this, looking really distraught. And I came up to him, I said, Jordy, are you right? He said, Tian, you wouldn't believe what happened to me this weekend. I said, no, tell me. He said, I, I, it was the end of the month, I had no money, I was bored, so I, Saturday morning I went to Farnham, took the bus in, stayed too long. When I wanted to come back, I missed the last bus, I didn't have money for, for a cab fare, so I had to walk the seven miles back to Borden. And he said, I just started walking when suddenly it started raining. Within, inst- within, within seconds, I was drenched, head to toe. And he said, I don't know what happened, but I became so angry. And as I stood in this roundabout, I started shaking my fists at heaven and shouting to God, God, if you're real, make somebody stop and give me a lift. Geordie said, the words had hardly come out of his mouth when a car drove up, opened the door and said, mate, do you need a lift? He said, I wish I could do a Geordie accent, but every time I try, it sounds more like an Indian than anything else. Um, so he said in his own accent, you know, I didn't know if it was an angel, man. I didn't know if I should get in the car or what, but I got in anyway. And he drove me all the way through to Borden. And, you know, I'm listening to the story and I'm smiling broadly. I thought, you know, finally the pennies dropped with Geordie. And I said to him, Geordie, what did you make of all of this? And he said, Tian, that's the thing. I've been thinking about this whole day. I can't get it out of my mind. And... Yesterday, if you asked me yesterday, I would have certainly told you that God answered the prayer for me. But today I was thinking about it and I thought, maybe the guy saw me shake, waving my arms and he thought I was waving him down for a lift. So I think more than likely it was just coincidence. I said to him, Geordie, do you know what? The God of the Bible says it's a grievous sin for us, his creatures, to test him in such a way. You had the audacity to demand of the God of all creation, the one who's given you evidence everywhere you look, the one who holds your breath in the palm of his hands. You had the audacity to demand him to show you in a specific way that he exists, and he answered. And here, a day later, you say it's nothing but coincidence. I said to him, Jordi, that's the highest level of ignorance if you ask me. And he said, yeah, it does sound pretty ignorant if you put it like that. I said to him, Geordie, I spoke to you many times. You don't have long left before you get posted. He had about five weeks or so left. I said to him, come, would you come, come to my office so we can just look through the Bible so I can show you what it says about Jesus Christ. I, he came to my office about twice a week for those last five weeks. Each time we spent about an hour and a half together. Just went through passages in the Bible, showing him what salvation is about, showing him how everyone was trapped in their sin and how only by Jesus redeeming us, reaching into the cesspit of our lives to save us from who we are, can we find salvation. We studied through that. And you know, by the, time, by the time we got to one of the last sessions, Geordie said to me, just before we left, I said to him, Geordie, our time's up. Where do you stand? He said to me, Tian, I'm no longer an atheist. I believe God is real. I believe Jesus is his son. I believe Jesus is God. But I cannot be a Christian. There's too many things in my life that I would have to give up if I become a Christian. I said to him, Geordie, that's the, that's the thing. You're looking at your sins. You're looking at the things you delight in. And you think you have to do away with all of those things. That's the wrong view. You need to look at Jesus. And you need to see how awesome and majestic and wonderful he was in saving you from those things. And then it will be dealt with automatically. I said to him, Geordie, you need to have the right perspective. And he, he looked at me, and he went away not changing his position. Three months later, oh, sorry, 
three years later, which was now recently, um, I, I, I went into one of the workshops, and there was Jordi. I said, Jeremiah, are you back? He said, yeah, I was just about to come and look for you. He was back on a short upgraded course. He was in camp for six weeks. We started meeting together, started discussing things again. Asked him, Jordi, how are you? Are you still considering the things of God? He says, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about it. So I said to him, well, where do you stand now? He said, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. So we talked and we talked. And one of the last times we met again before he went, I took him to John 3, verse 16, 17, and 18. He said, you know, we've read John 3, verse 16 so often. I said, yeah, but look at what verse 18 says. And we looked at it, and he read, and he saw, saw what it says, that those who do not trust in Jesus Christ stand condemned already. I said to him, Geordie, where are you if you're not in Christ Jesus? If you're not saved, where are you if you're not quite there yet? He said to me, I'm condemned already. I said, Geordie, this is the thing. You have one eternity. The Bible says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? All these things you want to hold on to, what will they profit you if you lose your soul? And then how does that point to us as Christian fathers? What do we want for our children? What are we cultivating them to become? Do they see in our day-to-day life that the most important thing in our life is the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done for us? Is that a reality every day when you go to work, when you come back home tired and everything is a mess? Do they see you kicking the toys around? Do they see you doing this? Or do they see a man who has been transformed by the power of God? That's the question we have to consider as Christian men. It's not easy. I'm telling you again, I'm not standing here as one who succeeded in these things. I'm standing here as one who are convicted by these realities every day. Brothers and sisters, that is why this verse, and we will close. Time has run away with us. I I will beg you, tonight we're going to go on with this. If you're a father... Any, as I say, anyone, please come tonight so we can finish this off. I will try and get through it tonight. But what we need to consider in all of this is now Ephesians 5 with verse 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice for God. We are to walk in love. We are not to act like those who are controlled by our momentary passions. We are to act like those who are controlled by truth, the truth of God. This is the call that rests upon the fathers in every Christian household. Let us not neglect it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We will, we will finish this tonight. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that you help us. We, we recognize that this is such a high calling. Lord, this is why you send us the great comforter, the great helper. Because I think if any one of us look even briefly at these requirements then we would all shy away in fear because we would recognize that 
there's no way I can achieve anything of any of these things. And that's the truth, Lord. There is no way I can achieve it. But in Christ, there is power. In Christ, there is a way. There is therefore now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. And I would pray, Lord, that for fathers here this morning, those who might feel convicted or if they feel encouraged or, or if they feel, what have I done with my children? Help them to remember those truths and remember that every experience in the Christian life works together for the good, for that purpose that your people may be made more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What a glorious thought, Father. What a glorious reality that one day we will be in the kingdom as brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ, yet he remains our king. And to him we humbly bow and ask, help us, Lord. Help us to live in the way that you desire us to live. In Jesus' name, amen.